While the international picture in Europe was growing increasingly dimmer for the United States, relations with Japan were souring as well. Japan's aggression was literally being fueled by the United States. The Japanese military machine relied heavily on imports of American steel and oil to prosecute its assault on China and French Indochina. Placing a strict embargo on Japan would have seemed obvious, but Roosevelt feared that Japan would strike at the resource-laden Dutch East Indies to make up the difference. Beginning in late 1940, the United States grew less patient with Japanese atrocities and began to restrict trade with the empire. Now, just prior to Hitler's invasion of the Soviet Union, Japan signed a non-aggression pact with Stalin. This removed the threat of a Russian attack on Japan's new holdings. And with Europe busy fighting Hitler, the United States remained the only obstacle to the establishment of a huge Japanese empire spanning all of East Asia. By the end of 1941, the United States had ended shipments of scrap metal, steel, and iron ore to Japan. Simultaneously, the United States began to send military hardware to Chiang Kai-shek, the nominal leader of the Chinese forces resisting Japanese takeover. This was the straw that broke Japan's back. Unbeknownst to the United States, while still holding on to a policy of neutrality by a thread, a Japanese fleet of aircraft carriers stealthily steamed eastward across the Pacific toward Hawaii. Welcome to another edition of Print the Legend, a podcast for U.S. history students, where we look at the stories that made up America and the stories that America made up. I'm your host, Mr. Nasosi, and in episode two of our three-part series on World War II, we'll look at America's involvement in the war, beginning with the Pacific, continuing in Europe, and of course, the impact on the home front. The goals for the Japanese attack were simple. Japan did not hope to conquer the United States. In fact, they didn't even want to force the abandonment of Hawaii with the attack on Pearl Harbor. No, Japan felt that the United States was too much of a threat to the newly acquired territories of East Asia. With holdings in the Philippines, Guam, American Samoa, and other small islands, Japan was vulnerable to a new American naval attack. The first swift strike against the bulk of the United States Pacific Fleet would seriously cripple the Americans' ability to respond. At least that was the goal. The hope was that Japan could capture the Philippines before the American Navy could recuperate and retaliate. An impenetrable fortress would then stretch across the entire Pacific Rim. The United States distracted by European events, would be forced to recognize the new order in East Asia. All of those assumptions were wrong. As the bombs rained on Pearl Harbor on the infamous morning of Sunday, 
December 7, 1941, almost 3,000 Americans were killed. Six battleships were destroyed or rendered unseaworthy, and most of the ground planes were ravaged as well. Americans reacted with surprise and anger. Ladies and gentlemen, a special announcement. The entire regular personnel of the sheriff and police office have been placed on its own with 12-hour shifts. All auxiliary personnel have been brought to emergency service instructions. All lines of communications and the various army Most American newspaper headlines had been focusing on European events, so the Japanese attack was truly a blindside. When President Roosevelt addressed the Congress the next day and asked for a declaration of war, there was only one dissenting vote in either House of Congress. Despite two decades of regret over World War I and ostrich-like isolationism, the American people plunged headfirst into a destructive conflict. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. The United States was at peace. Japan had an advanced pledge of support from Hitler in the event of war with the United States. Now President Roosevelt faced a two-ocean war, truly a world war. Despite widespread cries for revenge against Japan, the first major decision made by the president was to concentrate on Germany first. The American Pacific Fleet would do its best to contain Japanese expansion, while emphasis was placed on confronting Hitler's troops. Roosevelt believed that a Nazi-dominated Europe would be far more impregnable than any defenses Japan could build in the Pacific. American scientists worried that with enough time, German scientists might develop weapons of mass destruction. Once Hitler was defeated, the combined Allied forces would concentrate on smashing Japanese ambitions. American military leaders favored a far more aggressive approach to attacking Germany than their British counterparts. A cross-channel invasion from France, from Britain, would strike at the heart of Nazi strength, but the British command was dubious. Winston Churchill feared that should such an operation fail, the loss of human life, military resources, and British morale could be fatal. Instead, Roosevelt and Churchill agreed to implement an immediate blockade of supplies to Germany and to begin bombing German cities and munition centers. The army would attack Hitler's troops at their weakest points first and slowly advance toward German soil. The plan was known as closing the ring. In December 1941, Roosevelt and Churchill agreed to attack German holdings in North Africa first. 
These are the men who, after being smashed back almost to the gates of Alexandria, have driven the famed Africa Corps into the longest retreat in history. And now they blast them from the Marath line. That maneuver was finally executed in October of 1942. Nazi troops were occupying much of the African Mediterranean coast, which had been controlled by France prior to the war. Led by British General Bernard Montgomery, British forces struck at German and Italian troops commanded by the Desert Fox, German Field Marshal Erwin Rommel, in Egypt. As the British forced a German retreat, Anglo-American forces landed on the west coast of Africa on November 8th to stage a simultaneous assault. Rommel fought gamely, but numbers and positioning soon forced a German surrender. The Allies had achieved their first important joint victory. Certainly, here is evidence that the British will be welcomed on the continent when other great days come. Simultaneously, the Soviets turned the tide against Nazi advances in the Soviet Union by defeating the German forces at Stalingrad. When springtime came in 1943, the Allies had indeed begun to close the ring. Once North Africa was secured, the Allies took the next step towards Germany by launching invasions of Sicily and Italy. American and British leaders believed that when the Italian people faced occupation of their homeland, they would rise up and overthrow Mussolini. Fearing that the Allies would have a free road up to the border of Austria, German forces began to entrench themselves on the Italian peninsula. And despite German presence in Italy, Mussolini was arrested and the Italians surrendered to the Allies on September 3rd. There was no free road to Austria, however. German forces defended the peninsula ferociously, and even when the European war ended in May 1945, the Allies had failed to capture much of Italy. There's another, on its way to becoming a heap of flaming junk. America was the largest military power in the world, in theory. The large population, generous natural resources, advanced infrastructure, and solid capital base were all just potential. Centralization and mobilization were necessary to jumpstart this unwieldy machine. Within a week of Pearl Harbor, Congress passed the War Powers Act, granting wide authority to the president to conduct the war effort. Throughout the war, hundreds of alphabet agencies were created to manage the American home front. These men are aviation cadets. A short while ago, they too were average American boys from average American families. In the near future, they will have learned many things. How to pilot a plane, how to navigate, or how to operate a bomb site. First, the United States needed to enlarge its armed forces. Because of the peacetime draft, the United States Armed Forces boasted over 1.5 million members. By the end of the war, that number rose to 12 million. A more expansive draft and a vigorous recruitment campaign produced these results. Prodded by Eleanor Roosevelt, FDR's First Lady, she created the Women's Auxiliary Forces for the Army, known as WACs. 
in the Navy, waves, in the Air Force, wasps, and the Coast Guard spars. The colossal ranks of the armed services created huge labor shortage. And toward this end, a work-or-fight propaganda campaign was waged. Rosie the Riveter posters beckoned housewives to leave the home and enter the nation's factories. About 6.5 million females entered the workforce during the war years, many for the first time. African Americans continued the great migration northward, filling vacated factory jobs. And Mexican Americans were courted to cross the border to assist with the harvest season in the Bracero Guest Worker Program. Thousands of retirees went back on the jobs themselves, and more and more teenagers pitched in to fill the demand for new labor. He was a famous trumpet man from all Chicago way. He had a boogie style that no one else could play. He was a top man at his craft. But then his number came up and he was gone with the draft. He's in the army now, a blowing reveille. He's the boogie woogie bugle boy of Company B. The United States government spent over twice as much money fighting World War II as it had spent on all previous wars since the country's creation. Tax rates were raised to generate revenue to control inflation, and some people paid 90% of what they earned towards taxes. But still more money was needed, so the government again launched liberty and victory loan drives, like those that were helped to finance the First World War. In addition, the size of the federal government more than tripled from about a million workers in 1940 to almost 3.5 million workers in 1945. The United States managed to raise enough food and raw materials in the First World War through voluntary measures, but this time, federal officials agreed that only through rationing could these demands be met. Americans were issued books of stamps for key items such as gasoline, sugar, meat, butter, shoes, and rubber. You can have a zillion bucks, but the way it is now, you got to be a certified public accountant to buy a can of pork and beans. This improvement is what is known as rationing, which I will now explain to you. First, you got to add up what you got, like these ladies are doing. No purchase of these commodities was legal without an official stamp. Victory's speed limits attempted to conserve fuel by requiring Americans to drive more slowly. Rotating blackouts conserved fuel to be shipped overseas, and groups such as the Boy Scouts led scrap metal drives. Consumer goods like automobiles and refrigerators simply were not produced, and women drew lines down the backs of their legs to simulate nylon stockings when there were such shortages. Backyard Victory Gardens also produced about 8 million tons of food. Junk ain't junk no more, cause junk can win the war. What's junk to you has a job to do, cause junk ain't junk no more. Additionally, the Office of War Information sponsored posters and rallies to appeal to patriotic heartstrings. And the radio stations did their part. Bing Crosby 
being a star of the war on radio. From the Stork Club, where an aluminum collection party is now in progress. Standing before our mutual microphone right now is one of the screen's most lovely singers and actresses, Kitty Carlisle. But perhaps no other song on the radio during the 1940s captured the hearts of Americans more than this one, reminding Americans to remember that most important date on December 7th. Let's remember Pearl Harbor as we go to meet the foe. Let's remember Pearl Harbor as we hit the the accomplishments of the American public were nothing short of miraculous. The Navy had fewer than 5,000 vessels prior to the bombing at Pearl Harbor, and by 1945, they had over 90,000. In addition, over 80,000 tanks and nearly 300,000 aircraft were produced during the war years. Millions of machine guns and rifles and billions of ammunition cartridges rolled off of American production lines. New industries like synthetic rubber flourished and old ones were rejuvenated. At tremendous cost to the American taxpayer, the American people vanquished two evils, the Axis powers and the Great Depression. Let's remember That concludes this episode of Print the Legend, a podcast for U.S. history students where we look at the stories that made up America and the stories that America made up. I'm your host, Mr. Nasosi, and coming up next time on part three of our three-part series on World War II, we'll take a look at that famous Allied invasion of Europe, the negative impacts the war brought on Japanese Americans at home, and the use of weapons of mass destruction in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I look forward to welcoming you back next time.